Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We talk college hoops alongside Chris Dorch of Blue Ribbon. I'm Kevin Ingram. It is great to have you with us. Coming up on our show today, going to visit with Rich Hollenberg, a friend of the show and a terrific play-by-play guy for ESPN. Covers a lot of Big 12 games, so looking forward to uh, checking in with Rich and seeing what's going on in uh, one of the best, maybe the best uh, college basketball conference this season. Chris, what's going on, man? You know, just trying to stay one step ahead of the viruses, uh, whether flu or COVID, and Knock on wood, uh, I'm hanging in there so far. Yeah, me too. I, I've, I've been able to stay uh, reasonably healthy this winter. I, I had a little stuffiness the last few days. I feel like I'm, I'm talking through a tin can, but and uh, I, I thought I noticed that on a couple of the broadcasts in the last week or so. But uh, yeah, good, good to go here. Let's talk about uh, teams that are very healthy as we look at this college basketball season. And, you know, you kind of look at who's number one. Purdue's a pretty clear number one at this moment. They're yeah. uh, cruising along in the Big Ten at 11-1. and one. The Big Ten's, to me, just kind of okay this season, but it's always a tough league. 22-1 and one overall. They beat Penn State 80-60. to 60. They might have the player of the year in, in Zach Eady. Um, I was also looking at some of Joe Lenardi's uh, brackets because it's getting into the time of the season when you start to pay attention to that a little bit more. And some people get all bent out of shape, and you know we know we know Joe, and it's like you know it's he, he does, it's kind of a scientific approach to uh, opinions about these teams. Uh, his last four buys are Boise State, Maryland, Memphis, and West Virginia. His last four in are Pittsburgh, Penn State, Kentucky, and Oklahoma. And as a side note, I can't see Kentucky playing in the first four in Dayton. That would be uh, kind of crazy to see. And I, I think Pittsburgh's going to be in the main field, too. They, they've had a good season. His first four out are Texas A&M, Nevada, Oklahoma State, and Wisconsin. So uh, those things are highly subject to change, but uh, that's where things stand with about a month to go in the regular season here. Yeah, people just don't understand. Joe, uh, first of all, he knows it better than anybody, and, and I think is a one-man committee. And two, it's only a snapshot of today. Right. It, it's not a snapshot of what he thinks is going to happen in, in March. I'm, you know, it's it's good conversation piece. He gets tons of emails and he'll pick certain ones and, and kind of play around with them. And the same on social media, he'll, he'll snipe back at some, but boy, that's all he would do if he just answered fans' complaints and questions because he gets swamped. Uh, you had the Big 12 SEC Challenge or SEC Big 12 Challenge, depending on how you look at it, going back to last Saturday. You attended one of the games in Knoxville. Yeah. Uh, Big 12 had the upper hand. They went 7-3 and three in the matchups. Uh, to me, the most stunning was the, the schoonering that Alabama took in Norman, Oklahoma. That was just a beatdown. I, I was shocked by watching that. Kansas won at Kentucky. West Virginia beat Auburn. Baylor over Arkansas. Those were some of the highlights. Uh, wins for the SEC included Missouri over number 12, Iowa, 78-61. Mississippi State beat 11th-ranked TCU, 81-74. Uh, Florida lost to Kansas State, but I thought it was a cool scene with uh, Keontae Johnson visiting with his former teammates and also the athletic trainer who helped save him when he collapsed during that game at Florida State. But uh, there, there's some interesting games uh, in that series of matchups between the SEC and Big 12. As far as the one that you saw, Tennessee beat Texas in the uh, Rick Barnes Bowl, 82-71. Uh, and then Tennessee turned around and lost at Florida on Wednesday. But yeah. you know, what stood out about the, the Vols and Longhorns in that matchup that you watched? Well, first of all, I got there way early, which I always do, mainly because I hate to be in traffic, but also because I like to talk to people before the game. But I've heard some ushers uh, uh, talking about, wow, Alabama's down 30. And I, I said, what? 
And I just couldn't believe what happened at Oklahoma. I just could not believe it. I still can't believe it. But, you know, uh, Jimmy Dyke said it best last night, broadcasting the Tennessee at Florida game. Desperate teams are dangerous teams this time of year. Uh, as far as the Texas-Tennessee game, that was one of those games where Tennessee could beat anybody in the country. Their offense was clicking. They were getting the ball inside. They were working the mid-range. The three-pointer was falling when they needed it to. And their defense was was sticky, as, as it usually is. Uh, Texas caught them on some backdoor cuts, uh, which Rick wasn't too happy about. But, you know, after that, I think it was on Sunday, uh, Eamon Brennan from The Athletic wrote that you could make an argument that Tennessee was the best team in the country because they've beaten the two best teams in the best league in the country. Remember, they beat Kansas earlier uh, in the battle for Atlanta. And I thought, oh, no, he, he has just put the hoodoo on them. Yeah. And I knew the game at Florida would be a trap game for a couple of reasons. One, Florida uh, is desperate for quad one wins to try to get in the NCAA. And two, they've got Colin Castleton, who traditionally Tennessee and the Rick Barnes era haven't been able to defend good big guys. And he certainly toasted them last night in, in, beating, uh, in, in uh, Florida beating Tennessee. Chris, one of the best games in the midweek that I watched was a top 20 matchup in Cincinnati. Xavier beat Providence in overtime, 85-83. I tune in to watch Xavier in part because I know Adam Cuckle, who played at Belmont, and I right. did some of his games uh, for a year or two when he played there. And uh, the Friars had chances to win, uh, including a three toward the end of overtime. Uh, Musketeers held on. They lead the Big East at 10-2. and Marquette is also 10-2, and and Providence is 9-3, and so only a game back. I find myself uh, kind of creeping over there and watching some some Big East games. That's a really fun league, and man, there's some good clubs in that conference. Yeah, they beat on each other, and uh, I also like the the fact that I can hear Bill Rafferty. Uh, uh-huh. He he's he just turned eighty, and and man, he's still got the exuberance of a sixteen year old, and he's a lesser heralded Dick Vitale, but I I think he's quietly one of the best in the business and that's uh makes watching the big east fun but you're right the big east is a it's a rock fight league and sean miller i mean there's no question why i mean it was one of the weirdest uh fire hires of last year xavier fires travis Steele after he wins a first round nit game and it's because they heard South Carolina was sniffing around and trying to get Sean Miller. And they thought, wow, we, we've, we've got to do everything we can to get Sean Miller. So they fire a, a guy who had just won a postseason game and, and bring in Sean Miller. And obviously um, the, the issues he had at Arizona notwithstanding, Sean Miller does a great job. And then Xavier went on to win the NIT, and he had Sean Miller sitting in the stands for part of the game. Yeah, that was a weird a surreal deal it, it really was because we we played at xavier in the game that was before new york like it was the, it was the you know the that's right quarterfinal or whatever it was that, that you win to, to go play at madison square garden and xavier won a close one that night against vanderbilt uh pittsburgh won 65 64 north carolina jeff capel the pit coach he's, he's done a really good job with this team they have made a major turnaround they have to be one of the most improved teams in the country. We've seen them each of the last two the seasons as, as well. Sure. Yep, Yeah, he was definitely uh, in that position going into the year. But they've added some parts, some really good players, and they've made quite the turnaround. 
But it, it was it's kind of sad in a way to see the the dust up with uh, Jason Capel and some of the North Carolina fans. And, and Jason, Jeff's brother, was an outstanding player at UNC. He was unhappy uh, with a North Carolina social media post that he thought was aimed at him. A UNC spokesman said it was a coincidence that Creighton Lebo, Jeff Lebo's son, uh, the featured player was wearing the number 25 that Capel wore at North Carolina. They said all that the people that put that out had no idea that, that Jason Capel uh, wore that number. And you know, whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But in the bigger picture, uh, Jason and Carolina have had a rocky relationship over the years. And Jeff was saying that it goes back to 2009 when he was at Oklahoma and they were playing Carolina in a regional final. And Jason wore an Oklahoma shirt to support his brother and you know support his family. Right. And uh, some Carolina fans took exception with that. But that, that seems like seems, you know, <laughs> there ought to be some way to smooth some of this over, where there, there's you know a, a, a more friendly relationship between North Carolina and, and a guy who was an outstanding player there. I mean, Jason Capel was excellent during his days in uh, Chapel yeah. Hill. Well, the, it seems the Carolina fans are a sensitive lot. Uh, if you'll recall. Roy Williams, uh, I think it was in 2008 uh, in in San Antonio when Kansas won the national championship. He was in the stands because Carolina was in the Final Four, and he hung around to watch his old team, and he had a Kansas button on. And obviously that got on TV, and it didn't sit well with Carolina fans. But, I mean, come on. Uh, you can't expect Roy to, to lose his loyalty for the school that gave him his shot. I mean – Roy Williams was essentially what they used to call the part-time assistant yeah. on Dean Smith's staff. Uh, that was quite a leap that Kansas took, and he more than justified it. He's a Hall of Famer, and obviously, well, they won three national natties after he left yes. Kansas. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you've got to have a little loyalty to a place that really started you on, on your way to a Hall of Fame career. But, you know, fans, are they, they get a little – sensitive sometimes but i guess that's all part of it and uh i was thinking of speaking of north carolina carolina duke play on saturday and it's weird to see that matchup it'll be at cameron indoor stadium saturday night it's weird to see that matchup a with neither one of the teams ranked and of course they played a couple memorable yes. games uh, down the stretch and in the final four last year and uh, coach k's career ended against north carolina but i got to thinking this will be the first time and i looked it up first time since 1961 that the game didn't feature guys like Coach K, Roy Williams, or Dean Smith going all the way back to the early 60s. And really, if you count Dean Smith being an assistant coach before that, you can go into the stretch into the late 50s there. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, you know, the game has undergone a sea change, and part of it's because of coaches. Uh, Jim Beheim will be the next to go, and I, I read some piece today where Basically, they feel like a lot of people just feel like he's kind of going through the motions there and it's all but over for him. So it's it's the end of an era for a lot of coaches. Jay Wright leaving uh, just when he was kind of the heir apparent to being, I don't know, the, the figurehead, uh, the elder statesman of coaches. He decided to get the heck out. And I really think it has to do with the portal and, and NIL. It's just such a difficult uh, situation to recruit out there and and it's driven some great coaches from the game and I think Roy Williams in particular uh, coach K had had a great run and he's the goat I, I know that's in dispute by some people but not by those of us who really follow the game uh, but but yeah I, I I just Roy thought he couldn't offer anymore and I 
I disagreed with that. I think he could have still been coaching. So, yeah, this will be John Shire's first time as a head coach in this matchup. And, and I thought our buddy Brett Friedlander had a funny line. They were showing all the kids in tents out there, camped out to, you know, to get tickets or get in at, at Cameron. And uh, he said, has Krzyzewski Bill he said, has Krzyzewskiville become Chi-Town? I thought, <laughs> thought that was a funny one. <laughs> <laughs> that one slipped past me, man. I'm glad you reminded me of it. Chris, our guest this week, and uh, by the way, Chris always gets us the best guests. He knows everybody in college basketball, but uh, this guy's joined us uh, before, and it's always a lot of fun. He's one of the best play-by-play guys out there. He works for ESPN, covers a lot of Big 12 games. He is Rich Hollenberg. What's going on? Uh, guys, it's good to be with you again. Now, you were uh, at the opening night for Bruce Springsteen's tour in Tampa last night. And uh, oh, I, I, I've seen I've seen Bruce in the E Street Band. It's been a few years back, but it's a great show. Uh, what stood out about what you saw? What stood out, Kevin, is that this was the first time this band, this collection of, of musicians was on stage in front of an audience like this in six plus years. And from the first note to the last mo- note, it was like those six years just vanished. They were as tight as ever. They sounded as incredible as ever. They were as connected as ever. And they were as big as ever. Bruce put together, uh, we counted, it was a 19-piece band last night that's going on tour, uh, including him. So he's got E Street horns. He has an E Street choir now. He has an additional drummer in addition to Max Weinberg. But the fact that most of the people on stage are septuagenarians at this point, <laughs> and that they can still play with that much fervor and energy, it's mind-boggling. One thing that stood out to me for, from watching them play was it? And it felt like Max Weinberg kind of ran the show. If if you watched him, was that still the case? Well, first of all, he is incredible. Uh, between him and Roy Bitten, the piano player. Yeah. When you see Billy Joel. Okay, who's been playing just as long as Roy has with Bruce. Billy's fingers are gnarled like he has arthritis. He could barely move them to see what Roy does on that piano and on those keys for three hours. And then the same thing with Max. I mean, you say Max kind of drives it. He is. He's obviously literally and figuratively the backbeat. But what Max does and Bruce fans know this because Bruce even talks about it is. Max's one job the entire show is to never take his eyes off Bruce Springsteen because you never know when Bruce is going to call an audible, veer one way, choose a different song than the original playlist or set list. And Max is on it like an eagle. It is incredible. You could get, I I could get mesmerized just watching Max Weinberg watching Bruce Springsteen at every show. You know, Rich, they, uh, some people have groused about the, the boss's ticket prices, but he certainly gives you your money's worth, doesn't he? I mean, now more than ever, Chris, yeah. honestly, like we were talking about that. When we were going to the show, we were saying, I wonder what the audience is going to be like. I wonder if it's going to be a packed house. Well, A, the audience is older, and you should yeah. expect that, right? Yeah. But, B, I think that a lot of the younger fans who might want to experience Bruce maybe for the first time or the second time or people like me who have seen him our whole adult lives and would love to bring our children aren't doing that on this tour. The tickets are just too expensive. But it was still a packed house, and I think more than anything, he's going to ratchet up that adrenaline and energy even more than he usually does. 
because he knows that in the back of his mind, that's one of the narratives leading into this tour. Well, from the boss of rock and roll, let's talk about the boss of college basketball. That's the big 12. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, the SEC is probably glad that the SEC big 12 challenge is over after Saturday. Do you think though, that as good as the league is, that it's perhaps a little bit, I don't know, underrated by the national media and some of the metrics. It seems unbelievable to me that Kansas at number nine is the highest rated in Ken Palm. And you just don't, I don't know, maybe from my perspective and maybe it's wrong, but I, I hear all the time about, you know, the ACC, the big 10, even the SEC, and people just kind of tend to overlook the big 12. And I think it's a bias because maybe they feel like Texas and Oklahoma are gone and it's maybe somewhat of a lesser league, but it isn't, is it? Well, Chris, you know, I I very rarely disagree with you because I I hold you in such high regard, but I I would disagree on this front. I'm almost the exact opposite of you, right? You live in SEC country. I work in Big 12 country. So I am surrounded by these teams two or sometimes three times a week. And all we've talked about all season long, and it's an unbiased opinion, is that this is far and away the best conference in basketball, and it's not even close. And that that spread between the Big 12 and the rest of the conferences is wider this year than it's been in any of the years that I've covered college basketball. That also tends to hurt the Big 12, though, because they're sort of cannibalizing each other now that we're into league play. So, for instance, Kansas is going on the road to Ames to take on an Iowa State team that just gave up 23 points and lost uh, to Texas Tech. I'm going to be calling that game Saturday with Fran, and one thing I know Fran is going to say before we even sit down to call the game is, you know, sometimes these teams end up beating each other up, and it hurts them come tournament time. Like, in terms of where they're going to be seated in the field of 68 and and so on and so forth. But then you look at, like you said, the metrics and the numbers just don't lie. I mean, Kansas has the most quad one wins of any team in the nation. They have nine. If they win on Saturday, it'll be 10. And even Iowa state, which again, just lost on the road at Texas tech, which could almost be considered a bad loss because Texas tech was and eight going in, in the league but we know it's not a bad loss. Uh, Even Iowa state is six and six in quad one games. So if they beat Kansas, that's clearly a quad one win. They'll have seven quad one wins. Every game that they play from here on out is going to be a quad one game for the big 12. So the numbers will get inflated and you just hope that the committee uh, recognizes the strength of this conference and so far, Joe Lenardi, obviously, I, I, you know, I work with Joe and he's an ESPN employee. But the last time I checked, Joe had eight of the 10 Big 12 teams in. Our guest is Rich Hollenberg. How stunning was Oklahoma's beatdown of Alabama? I, I watched that game. I, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, I, I've seen Oklahoma up close and in person, but it's been a while. I haven't seen them in league play yet. I saw them uh, in the non-conference. And my takeaway from them was I feel like they're a a team in in transition. Porter Moser still doesn't have all of his guys that he wants, and he's doing a great job of recruiting those guys. 
But man, I think it says more honestly, fellas, I think it says more about Alabama than it does about Oklahoma. And hear me out on this because I think Alabama is an excellent basketball team. But to me, from maybe 100 yards away, and you two are much closer to it, from 100 yards away, Alabama seems like a feast or famine type of a team. If they have a bad night shooting, then they could get drilled. And they got drilled against an Oklahoma team in their home gym with a packed house. And it's not always packed at the Lloyd Noble Center in Norman, but they were a, a, a ravenous crowd with the number two team in the nation in there. Uh, so I think it says a little bit more about the hit or miss of the Alabama Crimson Tide than it does about how good Oklahoma is. Big picture, I think it was an eye-opener to everybody around the country, to your point, Chris, of just how good the Big 12 is, maybe in comparison directly to the SEC, because you had West Virginia win, again, albeit at home, yeah. against the ranked Auburn team as well. Yeah, I did uh, Alabama's next game. I went to uh, Tuscaloosa with Vanderbilt on Tuesday night, and it felt like it, it was, I think it was feast week for Alabama. Yeah. It may have been famine yeah, on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, it was like, it <laughs> felt like we were in the path of the tornado that night. I, I've been intrigued by Kansas State's rise this season, you know, and a first-year coach. How far do you feel like that group can go, and how neat is the story of Keontae Johnson? It's phenomenal. Um, seeing them in person, and I'll see them on Tuesday – they have TCU coming to town in Manhattan. Uh, seeing them in person, how connected they are. And I asked Jerome Tang that. I said, what, if anything, surprises you about this team? And he said, the level of buy-in was immediate. And you guys know, I, to say that about any team in the state of college basketball now is near impossible because these coaches – spend more time in the summer building their culture and their chemistry than they do coaching X's and O's like they used to. So a lot of teams are farther back and less developed going into February than they normally would be because they're starting with a whole new roster, essentially. You know, everyone says the best thing you could be as a college basketball team is old. Well, Kansas State is old, just like a lot of teams are. But Marquise Noel and Keontae Johnson – Arguably the best one-two punch in college basketball. Um, I know there are other dynamic duos who have higher scoring averages combined, uh, like Jamal Mashburn and company out in New Mexico is one of them. But as far as high-level basketball and what those two are doing, uh, you saw Keontae at Allen Fieldhouse. Again, for the first time in his career, he's playing at the Fog. And you have to take that into consideration, but he looked like a man among boys. Uh, against Kansas at Kansas had another double double. It, it's been remarkable. And the best example of how wonderful a story Keontae Johnson is, is little old me who doesn't have a whole ton of followers on Twitter posted the video of the handshake line that he was giving yep. Florida teammates after the game. And I'm closing in on 1 million views on that video. Wow. Not because of me, but because of Keontae Johnson and the love that college basketball has for him. Rich, you've spent a lot of time uh, with the Baylor program over the years, and I'm sure got to know Jerome Tang. Uh, does it surprise you or, or, or about what you expected when he finally got his own program? Uh, I think he was deserving of it for, uh, for a long time, Chris. Uh, I think he was waiting for the right opportunity. He probably wishes – 
it wasn't in the Big 12, so we wouldn't have to yeah. face his best friend twice every <laughs> right. year, maybe a third time in the Big 12 tournament. But uh, the energy that he brings to a program, and I went back and listened to his press conference when you know he clearly won the day in Manhattan that day. But he said, yeah. I'm not here to rebuild. I'm here to elevate. And he yeah. means that on a number of levels. And we've seen that, the enthusiasm, the passion, the joy that he coaches with has infected the team that he has. And, you know, we've all heard that cliche that a team takes on the personality of its coach. And that's what's happened at Kansas state. They've gotten a full on injection into the veins of what Jerome Tang brings to a basketball program. And quite honestly, as good as Baylor is, and I think they're second weekend good, I think they really miss Jerome Tang. And I think the biggest challenge for them this season has been overcoming and getting used to not having Jerome's voice at practice in the huddles during games, because Scott Drew gave him a lot of freedom, a lot of leeway and a lot of responsibility when he was the associate head coach in Waco. So you're seeing the shift in Kansas state for the positive and a little bit of a get over the hump and get used to it without Jerome at Baylor. Can you talk about, First, the shock of what's happened at Texas, and second, and Dana O'Neill wrote a great piece about this in The Athletic, how Rodney Terry and that older group of guys have said, hey, it's about us, you know, we play the games, and they've really rebounded, uh, I think, better than anybody could have thought. Yeah, um, they're like the forgotten team in the Big 12, and they're, oh, by the way, in first place right now. Mm -hmm. It's a little weird. (laughs) Um, I think the roster that this is obviously Chris Beard's team. I mean, and Rodney's not going to disagree with that either. No, this is, this is Chris's team. And personally, I always loved my interactions with Chris Beard. Uh, just the energy that he brings along the lines of what we were talking about with Jerome Tang, but maybe even to another level. That's what Chris Beard does for a program. And I think the starkest reality of that fellas comes when you look at the Texas roster and the Texas Tech roster. So when Chris Beard left Lubbock, right, the next year Mark Adams gets the job. He was the associate head coach, deservedly so, and they make it to the Sweet 16. That was a Chris Beard team. Now the same thing happens at Texas where Chris is out, Rodney Terry steps in, and I think they are a Sweet 16 or better team but you look at what's going on in Lubbock and all of a sudden now one full year removed from Chris Beard being there and they're one and eight in league play. Now, granted, four of those losses are by two possessions. I mean, they could easily be five and three or something like that, but instead they're one and eight. Um, I'm not saying Mark's a bad coach. I'm just saying Mark had to overhaul that roster. They're now one of the youngest teams in the big 12 And a lot of that has to do with Chris Beard's ability to recruit not only JUCOs, but also the transfer portal in general. He did an amazing job of that with Texas. And now a lot of those guys like Timmy Allen and Marcus Carr stuck around for one more year when they could easily left, either gone somewhere else or tried their hand getting paid professionally, and it's paying off for them. They are old, to your point. 130, 145 games played from some of these dudes. And they all stuck around. Dylan DeSue, former Vandy guy, yep. 
he stuck around an extra year. And they all still are following that train that, let's face it, Chris Beard put on the tracks. And Rodney Terry is just continuing that. The vibe at practice, the vibe at shoot-around, it is exactly the same as it was when Chris was there, except now there's obviously one man missing, and that's Chris Beard. What's your schedule like this week, Rich? Uh, I am going to Ames tomorrow morning. So uh, knocking wood that the weather doesn't interfere. But, uh, <laughs> Fran and I will be on the call at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central time for Kansas and Iowa State. And then uh, I get home for 24 hours and I'm back to Manhattan for TCU and Kansas State. That's life in the Big 12, yep. right? Top yeah. 10, top 15 matchups <laughs> everywhere you turn. It's it, It's been a blast. We talk Big 12. He's our uh, Bruce Springsteen correspondent. He's Rich Hollenberg from ESPN. Man, great to see you. Thanks so much for the time. Hey, no mention of the fact that I'm... I'm I was going to say, Georgia basketball. Come on, fellas. You and Mike White must be boys. My my son is a freshman at UGA. Is that right? Okay, okay. shout Shout out to my boss at ESPN, David Seisler, because I told him when my son got accepted last spring, hey, just throw me a bone. Any game that's televised on our air at Georgia, just feel free to throw me in there. And wouldn't you know it, next weekend, Kentucky at Georgia, I'm going to be on wow. the Wow. Wow. That's Good great for you. stuff. Who are you working with that day? Jimmy Dykes. Oh, cool. He's yeah. he's one of my favorites. Yeah, one of the best. Rich, thanks a lot, buddy. All right, see you guys. Well, that was Rich Hollenberg uh, from ESPN. Always great to have him with us. Uh, he's a lot of fun. Man, he really knows his stuff when it comes to the Big 12, and it's a great guest to have on. And uh, it was fun to hear his uh, concert review as well. You ever seen the East Street yeah. Band? I saw him back in about 2009. Uh, they played here in Nashville. And I'm kind of okay on Bruce Springsteen, but I thought that was a fantastic show. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they walk out there and you're like, wow, you know, it's it's them. Just such a, a legendary group. They still had Clarence Clemens back then. Uh, that was before he yeah. passed away. And uh, it, it was really neat I'm to see I'm a Springsteen fan, but not a mega fan. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen him live. That's on my bucket list. Uh, the tickets were a little pricey, uh, considering <laughs> I didn't want to push my luck. I finally got my, my man cave slash movie room built over the last uh, month. And I'm like, yeah, probably better not push that envelope too much with, <laughs> with the missus. I did, however, yesterday bought tickets for Robert Plant and Allison Krauss. Uh, they are a great duo, uh, occasional when they feel like it. And every chance you get to see a, a member of Led Zeppelin, the golden God, you got to go, especially when they're in your town. One of my great concert regrets going back to a, a lot of years was back in the nineties, a buddy of mine had a ticket to see plant page at Rupp arena in Lexington. And, uh, I had to work and I, I just couldn't really go. And uh, I always wished I could have gone and seen that show because, I mean, they, they, they play one. like all the old Led Zeppelin stuff. Like my friend was a huge Zeppelin fan and, and I love all that stuff, too. So I got a legendary. I, I, I would have loved dude. to see that. Mine makes me sick to this day. I, I, was, I was too little and I get it. But on the Beatles last tour, my cousins were going and they invited me and my parents wouldn't let me because I was a little too young. And uh my cousin still has the ticket stub from that show. Oh, man. I was in St. Louis in, <laughs> in 66, and I wish I could have seen him. Uh, I've worked with people that saw the Beatles, that saw Elvis, that saw the Allman Brothers when Dwayne Allman was alive. Uh-huh. 
Uh, boy, it'd have been great to see some of those those people. You wanted to talk, uh, get your thoughts real quick. National Player of the Year watch. Uh, Zach Eady seems to be the the front runner for Purdue. If you average twenty two and thirteen and two blocks per game, uh, that that's pretty much getting it done. I tell you, a guy I saw this week, and I've seen him twice in person, and. I don't know if he's going to be player of the year. He'll probably be a player of the year in the SEC. But to me, he has to be a first-team All-American. That, that's Brandon Miller. Uh, he's from here in Nashville. He's from Antioch. He, he played over at Cane Ridge. That guy is unbelievable. Um, it just feels like he's everywhere on the court. And for a first-year college player, his decision-making and poise is really good. He's not going to dominate every single game. And he's had a couple games where you know it, it hasn't been quite that way. But... For the most part, he's been excellent. He's averaging 19 points and 8 rebounds a game. He's a leading three-point shooter in the SEC, and he's he's not a little guard. I mean, he's he's a big guy. Oh, he's 6'9". Yeah, yeah, I've really been impressed in watching him play. For a freshman who's probably number one on every uh, team's scouting report, it's it's been remarkable. Like you said, he, he's had a couple of misfire games, but he's been remarkably consistent. So there's your national freshman of the year, I think. Mm-hmm. Unless something happens to Edie, and I'm knocking on wood that it does not, he's been the best player in the country, uh, on the best team in the country, and he's just an unstoppable force in there. I've I've seen few bigs in my career, even you know dating back to when I was a little kid and Walton and Jabbar roamed the earth. Uh, Edie is a guy that gets his position, and once he gets it, you might as well just run down to the other end of the court because <laughs> it's going in, in the hole. He's shooting 61%, average of 21 points, 13 boards. He had 38 and 13 against Michigan State, who pride themselves on guarding uh, the other day. So he's my guy. Uh, I don't know who, who would be a close second. Drew Timmy of Gonzaga is, is posting good numbers. And Jalen Wilson from Kansas is, is having a great year, too. I think in his last four games, he's averaging 28 and seven boards. So we'll see, but I think it's easy to lose. Wanted to mention the passing of Billy Packer. Uh, he was 82 years old, just died in the last few days. Uh, four decades as a college basketball analyst. Worked the Final Four for NBC and, of course, for many years for CBS. Uh, he worked with a who's who of play-by-play announcers, really best known for, for Jim Nance and for Brent Musburger before him. NBC with Dick Emberg, uh, worked with Al McGuire. They, they had that trio of guys. It was crazy to, to think about those dudes doing games together and Gary Bender and Kurt Gowdy. And you, you think about um, you know Packer being on that uh, Michigan State-Indiana State game going back to 1979 with NBC. But to me, he's one of those guys, and no matter how you felt about him, he did set the table for generations of TV analysts. He was not afraid to be critical or say how he felt. And it just always felt like a big game if he was on it. And you're talking about a guy, he played at Wake Forest. He was part of a Final Four team back in 1962. But Billy Packer, for many, many years, was really a, a key figure in the college basketball media scene. One of the highlights of my career, you know, as a kid, I watched him and admired him. And he drew me into ACC basketball with his commentary, but eventually after taking over blue ribbon, getting to know him as a friend. And I remember he was working on some deals to help me with blue ribbon. And, but beyond that, just getting to know him and talk to him about the game. You're right. He was confident. He would say, I'm sometimes wrong, but I'm never in doubt. Uh, He would say what's on his mind. And about that, triumvirate with Enberg and McGuire. They sort of pioneered the three in the booth and they were the perfect yin and yang. Yep. I mean, 
Billy Packer, straight laced, uh, by the book, did his homework. And Al McGuire, who just kind of, you know, winged it and just kind of showed up and, and, and just said what was ever on, on his mind. And I knew it. Sometimes he drew, drove Packer crazy. Uh, and Enberg was a great traffic cop. But yeah, uh, Billy Packer uh, made an indelible mark on this game and, and helped popularize it. As was, uh, I was reminded, uh, again, that 2008 Final Four, uh, in between games, they had a press conference and anointed uh, Dick Vitale uh, in the Naismith Hall of Fame. And Jim Nance was the uh, master of ceremonies. So I thought, okay, I'm writing this story. It'll be great to get a, a quote from Jim about Dickie V uh, being a broadcaster and breaking that ground. And uh, bad idea. Uh, he didn't like that at all because his first response was, Billy Packer should already be there. And I'm like, okay, Jim, thank you. See you later. <laughs> Hello, friend. Billy. Nice talking to you, bro. <laughs> but, yeah, he, he did not hide his disgust. And I don't think Billy is, is still in. I, I could be wrong He really that, should be if he's not. He, do, he should. I mean, guys like him and, and Vitale and to a lesser degree, a degree uh coach raft i mean uh, who can forget send it in jerome mm -hmm. uh you know when the pit player uh smashed the backboard uh i mean guys like that attract people to the game espn attracted people to the game when i was coming up uh you could watch games on saturday and I was in the Midwest, so we would get to see one Big Ten game and one Missouri Valley game. And that was it, you know. And now it's like you can watch a game any night of the week, as many as you want. And, you know, junkies like us will sit up and watch games on the West Coast and, and stuff. And uh, But but those guys and, and that network, ESPN, deserve a ton of credit for as popular as college basketball has become. You know, and I was thinking about when I was a teenager back in the 80s and we were, we'd play basketball in the driveway and have all these pickup games. I mean, people were always dropping all these Billy Packer quotes uh, while we're out there, you know, mixing it up. <laughs> and it was pretty funny. But one of his more memorable quotes or his memorable lines from calling a game was actually uh, at a game that I was in attendance at the RCA Dome in 1997 was uh, the Arizona-Kentucky Overtime National Championship game. And at the end of it, uh, there's a scene of Miles Simon holding the ball and Billy Packer says, Simon says championship. And CBS showed that clip for years on their open for college basketball, especially when it was tournament time. So uh, yeah, I always think about that. All right, one more for you, Chris, before we go. So the food delivery guy at Duquesne, that was totally a social media stunt, as we speculated it might be. We called it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy in this day and age where anybody, uh, whoever coined that phrase, everybody has their 15 minutes of fame, they could not have foreseen how easy it is these days. Uh, all you got to do is mic yourself up, get your boys with their cell phones in the stands, and walk out onto a basketball court with a McDonald's <laughs> bag in your hand, and you're good for a couple of million views. So, uh, I don't know. I'd be too embarrassed to do it. And he, he should have been hauled off and arrested. I don't know that he was. But, uh, 
you got no business there. I don't care if you are delivering a pizza. <laughs> There's a time and a place. But That's, yeah, social media has made it so easy to get your 15 minutes. That's Andy Warhol, right? That was that was Andy Warhol. I thought about it as soon as the words left my mouth. Thanks for recovering for me. <laughs> but yeah, 15 minutes of fame. And, you know, with TikTok, with Instagram, with Twitter, Facebook, man, it's it's easy. You don't have to rely on somebody choosing to cover you. You can forge yourself in, into the into the conversation. Yeah, some of us get our 15 minutes of fame holding a 20-ounce cup of Diet Coke on a Thursday afternoon in Jacksonville. That's right. Triple spillage. <laughs> Triple spillage. That'll always be legendary. <laughs> yep, I still have people asking me about that all the time. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Chris, always a lot of fun. Talk to you next time, bud. Thanks, buddy.